What's up, Lamb Fam? Welcome back to the Life After Miscarriage podcast, where we unapologetically chat the ins and outs of what life is actually like after miscarriage. I'm your host, Shelly Metling, and with four angel babies myself and one rainbow baby here on earth, I have created a platform for you guys to share your stories. So sit back, relax, get ready to relate, laugh, and cry as we get real on what life is actually like after miscarriage in the 21st century. Wanted to pop in and give a quick little heads up that this episode may have an extra level of sensitivity and maybe a tad controversial. This episode is related to termination due to medical reasons. Therefore, if this episode is not going to be your jam, go ahead, click off right now. There are plenty more episodes that are going to be completely relatable to you. Remember, we are all about love, not hate, and everybody's story has a right to be heard. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. We have Caitlin on the episode today. I'm so excited. And Caitlin, I am going to be learning a lot about your story along with the listeners. So I'm just going to throw it at you and start wherever you'd like. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, This podcast has been a lifesaver for me the past few weeks after my loss. Um, So thank you for that. Um, so my journey to even conceive has been long, so <laughs> bear with me while I get to the pregnancy part. You're going to be like, on this three-hour episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I met my husband in 2010, um, and we got married in 2014, and we were living in New York City at the time, and we knew we wanted kids, but we didn't want to raise them in the city, so... Um, in 2015, we moved out to the suburbs and like things fell into place super quickly for us. Um, like we both found jobs that we loved and we found a house immediately that we loved. Um, so we were like, this is great. This is all going to work out. <laughs> so once we got settled into our house, we spent, let's see, the first eight months just trying the good old fashioned way. Um, and I know that doctors say like it could take a year to get pregnant but like who's actually fine with that timeline you know <laughs> like when you're ready to get pregnant you're not waiting a year like you need it to happen immediately yeah um and it just did not for us so we went to my OB um he put us on Clomid for three cycles um and I don't know if you've ever been on Clomid but <laughs> so anyone who's been on Clomid knows that like the Clomid crazies are a real thing. Like I would be laughing hysterically one second and then sobbing. And then I'd have like road rage on the highway. Like I was asylum status on this stuff. Like it's crazy. (laughs) Um, And my husband actually, which is funny, like in hindsight, but he called my mood swings, um, the Clom monster. Oh my gosh. I love that. I know. So so he'd be like, He'd be like, um, I think the Clow Monster is coming out, so I'm just going to give you some you space. You need to make a shirt. <laughs> yeah, the Clow Monster. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's funny to look back on, but, like, it's, you know, it was great that he could leave the room and close the door, but, like, I was stuck with myself. Like, it was terrible. <laughs> um, but, yeah, aside from turning me into a crazy person, Clomid did nothing for us, like, Every month I got my period like to the day and it was just so frustrating. So we moved over to a well-known fertility clinic in the area and we did, we spent like six months doing every test under the sun and they came up with the dreaded infertility, unexplained infertility diagnosis. Um, 
So they just had no idea what was going on. Like my cycles were normal. I was ovulating regularly. Like my womb was healthy. Um, and I'm relatively young, so they don't assume that there's like an egg issue. And then on my husband's side of things, um, he's a chef. So he spent the past 12 years like in the kitchen in front of a hot oven. So we were like, okay, like maybe it's not so great. Um, and he had some like morphology issues, um, and like a little DNA fragmentation, but like, honestly, my RE wasn't worried at all. Like she was very confident and she was like, you guys are going to do great. So we started with IUIs and we did three of them. And every time we got that, like, unfortunately, I'm not calling with good news phone call. Like we weren't pregnant, all three IUIs. Um, so we decided to move on to IVF. And our insurance, we were very lucky. Our insurance covered two IVF cycles. So, like, it took a lot of, you know, stress off of us um, just going into it. But, like, I was, and I think a lot of people share this feeling, like, I was very naive going into IVF. Like, I think that I just assumed it was this miracle worker, you know? And mm -hmm. the reality is it just does not work for everyone. So by the end of our first IVF cycle, um, I had 45 follicles, like it was crazy. Um, on retrieval day, 24 of those follicles had mature eggs in them, um, but only eight fertilized with ICSI. Um, and if you're not familiar with ICSI, um, it's like the procedure where they put a single sperm cell into the cytoplasm of the egg. And so our clinic calls on day one, which is the day after your retrieval with like a fertilization report. And then depending on the clinic, they'll call on day three or they just like won't even disturb the embryos until day five. So we got a call on day three from the doctor, which I've now learned is bad news. <laughs> like if the doctor's calling and not the lab, like we got some bad news coming. Um, so she told us that all of the embryos arrested on day three and none of them even made it beyond four cells. Um, so just I just like was crying uncontrollably. Um, and the doctors like had no idea why this was happening. And, you know, they looked at other embryos in the lab to see if, you know, something was going on in the lab that day and everyone else's embryo was fine. It was just ours. So they were like pretty confident and reassuring that if we went into another cycle that we would have better luck. So cycle two, we retrieved 24 eggs, 15 were mature six fertilized and most arrested, but there were like two embryos that were like hanging on. They were like pretty pathetic, but like they figured, you know, sometimes the embryos just do better in your body than they do in vitro. So we transferred two and like looking back, I think it was just like a pity transfer, <laughs> to be honest. Like I felt like they just felt so bad for us. They just shoved them up there but like I <laughs> when I got my period like before so she weeks were up like before I even, I even did the pregnancy test so that was a fail so with our third round we decided to try something different um, I stayed on the same protocol but my husband did Tessie which is where they extract surgically testicular tissue like right from the source um, and the idea there is that like DNA fragmentation is minimized and it's just better quality sperm. 
Um, and also like he got to get in on the fun, right? <laughs> like, yeah. It's not just me having surgery. <laughs> um, Finally, he has to do something, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, so this time we had 32 eggs retrieved, 28 mature, and 15 fertilized, and we're dividing. And so these numbers were like a lot better than we had in the past. So I was like feeling pretty positive. But sure enough, we got the damn phone call saying that nothing made it past five cells. And like at this point like just waiting on phone calls from the doctor like whether for embryo updates or like pregnancy test results was like the worst form of torture and like now I actually have to like keep my phone on silent at all times because just like the phone ringing is like a trigger for me it like makes me jump out of my skin um so to top it off with this cycle it was like truly the cycle from hell because they put me on Dostinex, which is supposed to prevent ovarian hyperstimulation, and I got it anyway. So after the retrieval, I gained eight pounds, like, in a 24-hour period. Like, I was huge. And so I was, like, miserable, like, emotionally, obviously, but, like, physically, like, I was throwing up all day. Like, I looked – I truly looked seven months pregnant, and the irony of that is not lost on me. <laughs> um, I couldn't, like, lay down because – so I wasn't sleeping at night because all of the fluid from my abdomen was, like, pushing up, like, into my lungs, and I was, like, wheezing. It was just awful. So, like, seven days after the retrieval, I finally went to my doctor, which I probably should have done earlier, um, and she did, like, an ultrasound, and – she just saw like my ovaries were swollen, like so swollen. They were just swimming in fluid. And she was like, wow, you're a trooper. Like <laughs> if you want me to tap this fluid, like I'm a keg, like we can go to the OR and we can like relieve some of that. And like, I was already starting to feel a little better. So and, like the thought about going back to the OR and having surgery, like a week after my egg retrieval was just like very unappealing to me. Um, so I kind of just sucked it up. Um, and I felt a little better, like once that 10 day mark happened, like when the HCG trigger was out of my system, like I started to feel better. Um, so after that cycle, we took a little time to recover, um, just like between the injections and the like morning monitoring, it's just like very, it's just a taxing process. So with our fourth cycle, we actually switched doctors. Um, and we came up with this new plan because we were tired of getting hit with the same bad news over and over and over and over. <laughs> so the plan this time was to fertilize my eggs with um, donor sperm. And like the donor sperm process was, it's just weird because <laughs> you're essentially like shopping for DNA. It's very strange. Um, and you're not ever going to find someone that can like hold a candle to your husband, but like you desperately try to anyway. Um, and so I like spent hours on the sperm bank websites, like looking into every detail of every donor. And so I finally found someone that was a pretty good match. Like he even had a dimple like my husband. So I was like, this is meant to be, this is great. So that cycle, we retrieved 28 eggs, 20 more mature, nine fertilized. And my doctor called on day five and I was like, oh my God, it's been my eggs this whole time. And she was like, I know, like, I know that's where your mind is going, but I actually just got off the phone with the lab and they said the sperm vials that were sent to you were terrible. Like they were the worst quality they've ever seen, which is just like insane to me. So it's just like, again, we just have bad luck. 
Um, and because the quality was so bad, my doctor actually um, offered to cover the cost of our fifth round of IVF. Like she was going to pay for it. And she actually went to bat for us and like talked to the sperm bank to get them to give us like our money back, which is great because apparently they don't ever do that. Um, apparently what I learned is that the sperm banks, they look at motility and like volume, but like if there's a morphology issue or like DNA fragmentation, they don't even test for that stuff, which is crazy to me. Um, so IVF cycle five, <laughs> we're like, fifth time's a charm. Um, so we weren't taking any chances. So we got two different sperm donors from two different <laughs> um, sperm banks, like just to have a backup, just in case the first file was terrible. Um, so 36 eggs retrieved, 22 mature, seven fertilized, and we had nothing to show on day five. And so finally, my doctor was like, I can't believe it. Like, it's your eggs. Like, it actually is your eggs. Um, and she was like, I really, I feel like NIH should study you. I was like, thank you. Like, that should make me feel better. Um, and I feel like I could have gone to some other specialists to, like, look into my eggs. Like, maybe it was a mitochondrial defect. Like, who knows? But, like, I don't feel strongly about passing on my DNA. So, like, we just want to have a family. So, like, however we achieve that, we were happy. So, in January, this past January, we went into a donor egg cycle. Um, and choosing a donor egg was like certainly more difficult um, just because the selection's more limited. Like, obviously, right? It's just like the process is more taxing than just like <laughs> guys just have an orgasm in a cup and like it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so we found a donor um, and we split the eggs with half donor sperm and then half my husband's sperm because we figured like if it was my eggs all this time like maybe his sperm could work um so seven frozen eggs were in the donor lot six survived the thaw um three fertilized two with donor sperm and one with my husband's and we ended up with one perfect blastocyst on day five and so when my do my doctor called so like first of all I see her number come up and like I'm like all right well again here we go so I answered the phone and I was like very monotone. I was like, hi, doctor. <laughs> and she was like, no, I'm actually calling with good news. <laughs> and so I was just like sobbing with tears of joy because like I don't even have a positive pregnancy test. But like finally, after three years, we have good news. Mm -hmm. So uh, we transferred the embryo on day six. And two weeks later, we took a beta test. And I know that you're like, from what I've heard, you're like a home tester. I have like the opposite feeling like I can't just because like, I think that first eight months of not getting pregnant and taking negative pregnancy tests, I just can't, I can't do it. So like I patiently wait for those two weeks to be up and like do the blood test. So um, my nurse called me later that day and she's like, hi, how are you? And I'm like, I'm good. I'm pretty good. <laughs> like give me what I want to hear. Am I good? And, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, well, you should be good because you're pregnant. And I was oh like, are you sure? And she was like, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> like the numbers don't lie. So I went in for my second beta a couple of days later, just to make sure the HEG levels were increasing. Um, and like, I saw one of the nurses who I'd been working with and she just like hugged me and was like, your numbers look good. Like, are you so excited? And I just, like, 
started crying and she was like, why are you crying? And I told her like, you know, it's just been such a long journey to get here. Um, but like, really I was crying because I was just waiting for the bad news. Like I was waiting for that shoe to drop, you know, and which is so sad, <laughs> but, um, so anyway, so when you're working with a fertility clinic, they give you two ultrasounds before you like are a graduate and work with your OB. So I did one at six weeks to confirm the pregnancy was viable and there was like a fetal cold. And then I did another one at eight weeks and we heard the heartbeat and like the limbs were starting to sprout and it was all very exciting. Um, and I actually had some bleeding like at six weeks and eight weeks and it was like very jarring because it was like bright red blood. I, w I didn't have cramping or anything, um, but it was like not enough blood to like soak through a pad, but it was like enough where like when I went to the bathroom, it like filled the toilet, you know? And so I like freaked out. I was sure I was miscarrying. And my nurse actually told me um, that in 99% of IVF pregnancies, women have bleeding like that, which is crazy. Um, and everything was fine, which is just, I guess you just never know. Yeah. Um, um which is so frustrating. <laughs> um, so anyways, I went to my OB at 10 weeks, which was kind of like a milestone week for us because, um, at 10 weeks you, we stopped our progesterone supplements, which was like, which are like the worst. It's like uh -huh. this huge needle with like thick oil. It like, I had like knots on like <sighs> my booty that like still haven't gone down they're like permanent I think um so like it was just great and we heard the heartbeat and it's just the sweetest sound in the world so we scheduled our nuchal translucency scan and we wanted to do NIPT testing just because we use donors um so we scheduled that for 13 weeks um and it happened to be um national infertility week so like my plan was once everything looked fine on the scan um, we were going to announce on Facebook and I was going to like, um, come forward with everything we had gone through in this like journey to conceive. Um, and I like up until that, this point, like I haven't been, I don't know, brave is the word. Like I didn't want to share our struggles and it's not cause like, I feel any sort of shame. I think it's more like I was worried that it would put more pressure on, you know, on us to succeed. And like, that's really the last thing like I wanted to put on my plate. Um, so like our, all of my friends know, like my family knows. Um, but like, I never like had this profound Facebook post that I like still to this day dream of. Um, so my husband and I went to maternal fetal medicine at our hospital for this appointment. And the ultrasound tech spent like 30 minutes with us. Um, she's like pointing out all the baby's features, like the blood supply was good. The heartbeat was good. Um, sorry. Um, and then she left the room and said the doctor would be in shortly. And, um, the doctor wasn't like the doctor took, I mean, it felt longer than 30 minutes, but it was 30 minutes to come into the room. And I remember like, looking at my husband and saying like I'm sure everything's fine but this is just making me super anxious you know and he was like it's fine and she just you know she's reviewing things everything's gonna be fine um and so she finally came in um and she's very apologetic she said her previous patient's case was like very complicated 
Um, and so she said, you know, let me take a look. And so she started doing the ultrasound. Um, and this is where I knew something wasn't right. Um, because the silence in the room when a doctor is looking at a sick baby is like deafening, you know. So she took a deep breath and she said, there's a problem with your baby. And it was like I had this outer body experience. Um, like I was too shocked to cry, which let me tell you, is rare for me <laughs> as I'm like sobbing now. Um, but I was just like instantly like shaking uncontrollably. And she told us that our baby's skull hadn't formed, um, that it didn't have a discernible nose and that there was actually some brain tissue in the amniotic sac. Um, and I asked her what this meant because it was just like very difficult to believe that something was wrong when you can like see this baby moving around and like it has a strong heartbeat, you know? Um, and she told us that the baby had severe anencephaly um, and that it was incompatible with life. Um, and this isn't a diagnosis that's given lightly. So I knew that it was, it was bad. Um, and I was essentially just life support for this baby. Um, and she told me it's very rare and that she had only seen it four times in her career. Um, and that two of the parents had decided to terminate and then two attempted to carry to term. And like of those two, one baby was still born and the other only lived a couple minutes after birth. Um, and so after like everything we'd been through, like, I just asked her and the genetic counselor who was in the room at this point, like, if this was me, like, if, if this was because, you know, of my body, um, because it's hard to believe that it's not, you know, because I'm the only constant throughout this whole journey. And like, consistently, we're getting negative news. So like, how is this not me? And the genetic counselor assured me that it's totally random. Um, and honestly, just bad luck is what she said. So like, again, with that phrase that we all hear and hate so much. Um, so my husband and I decided that we couldn't carry the baby to term. And it wasn't an easy one. But um, we thought, that, you know, like, if there is a God and there is a heaven, like, who are we to keep this baby from heaven, you know? Um, what was that discussion like? Like, if you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, sure. That. Like, to be honest, we didn't even have to really talk about it. Like, we just look at each other and we just knew that this is what we had to do because, like, this ch this baby was suffering. And we, like, I feel like it would have been selfish for us to just carry this baby to term just to, like, be able to hold, you know. It just felt like the most selfless decision that we could have made. Um, and, you know, like it, there's a lot of guilt. You feel like guilty about it. Um, but I just have to keep reminding myself that like this was the, the best parenting decision that we could have made for this child, you know? Um, and so um, we, and so we live in a state with like reproductive rights. Um, and even given that, like this scheduling this DNC was not easy. <laughs> so our maternal fetal medicine doctor 
um, wasn't sure if my OB would do the procedure. And I honestly was too uncomfortable to ask for myself. Um, so they referred me to another hospital that had a family planning clinic. Um, and I didn't hear from them for almost two full days. And I was trying to call and I could not get a human being on the phone. And it was just like, so frustrating because I felt like I couldn't start to grieve. Like I, like I was just carrying this like poor child that's suffering and we couldn't like do anything about it. So finally, like almost two full days after that um, appointment, we got a call from the clinic um, and they said that they couldn't get us into the OR for another week. Um, but they could get us in the very next day in the physician office building. So we could do it just like at the doctor's office. Um, and like, this was very concerning to me because not only do I not know these people, but like, I did not like, just like the, the idea of being aware of what was going on during this procedure. I just felt like that would have been completely traumatizing. Um, and I even asked, I said, you know, like, um, cause they said they would give some IV medications. So they said, um, they would give me fentanyl and Xanax. And so, um, I was like, well, will I be like aware of what's going on? And she said, um, well, I can't say that you won't be aware, but you'll be pretty high and fine with it which I thought was kind of an interesting choice in words um, because there's like in no way am I fine with any of this. Um, but I just like needed it. I needed it to happen, you know, and I didn't want to wait a whole week. Um, and so luckily as if my OB's ears were ringing, she called um, like a couple hours later and she like couldn't believe that the MFM, do MFM doctor didn't call her and ask her. And she like had already blocked off her schedule for that next day and she was going to do the DNC for me in the hospital in the OR um which was like such a uh, relief for me um so leading up to that DNC like I was inconsolable like I know we've all been there but like like I was crying so hard that like my face <laughs> like my face or my eyes were like swollen shut and like my head was pounding um it was just an awful um day leading up to a couple of days. Um, so when we got to the hospital, like the staff was amazing. Like they met me right at the front desk as soon as I arrived, they covered me in warm blankets. They were like hugging me and consoling me. It was just like, they were so compassionate, which is like what you expect in the doctor, but hardly ever get, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Um, so my OB, since I was a little further along, I was 13 weeks. Um, she had to dilate my cervix first. Um, about 30 minutes before the procedure. Um, and then when it was time to go in, she gave me some like IV meds and I was um, completely out. So, and waking up, like, I feel like what I remember the most, like the hours and days after the procedure was just like the emptiness. Like, you know, as soon as you're pregnant, you have that full feeling. Um, and like, I hadn't even felt the baby move yet at this point, but like, you're just so like hyper aware of every change in your body. Um, so that, just that void, I was just so painfully aware of that. Um, and so we, my husband and I both took off work for a couple days and um, we just grieved together. We like planted a tree for the baby. Um, 
and we just like did the best we could to honor the time that we had with the baby. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Um, and what's, what's so weird looking back and like so irrational is like my friends always talked about like in their first trimester, they would have these like gender dreams. Did you ever have one? Like when you're in any of your pregnancies? I don't think I did. Yeah, so it's weird. Like, a lot of my friends were like, I had a dream of the girl, and they have a girl. Um, and so I was, like, kind of waiting for that dream. And throughout my first trimester, I was actually having miscarriage dreams. And I would wake up in bed and, like, have to remind myself, like, it's okay, you're pregnant, everything's fine. I had you plenty know. of those. You did? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, like, um, you know, and then you, like, remind yourself that you're still pregnant, and then you're, like, smiling in bed, and it's wonderful. But... Unfortunately, like for a few days after the TNC, I was still having those dreams. And so I was waking up like very disoriented. And like, so my reaction was to be like, it's okay, you're still pregnant. And then I had to like remind myself that I was no longer pregnant. And so then I'd be like, (laughs) it'd be like 4 a.m. and I'm like sobbing. Um, So it's just kind of awful. But um, so yeah, we are two weeks out from the DNC. Um, so it's still all pretty fresh. Um, we are waiting for my HCG level to get down to zero. Um, it, I think it was one thirty this past week. And we're just like going to take the summer to like heal and um, find new donors, which we have to go through that whole process again. Um, and like, although it's rare for anencephaly to happen in consecutive pregnancies, like, it can happen. And I feel like I am a magnet for <laughs> all rare things that could happen to a person. So I'm, like, taking every precaution. So they um, want me to take four milligrams of folic acid as opposed to the, like, 800 that's in 800 micrograms, which is in our prenatal. Um, and I know you talked about this with, I think, Carmen, um, that you took folate, right? Instead of folic yeah. acid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my RE also is someone who doesn't believe in the MTHFR situation and I didn't even get tested for it, but like, you know, I worry like it, like maybe that's why my baby had a neural tube effect because maybe I can't process folic acid. So I'm just taking folate because I figure it won't hurt. So. It's just the natural form of it. Yeah, and exactly. It's a little bit more expensive. That's what I always tell everybody. Just a, It's a little bit more expensive than folic acid, but it's worth it. Yeah, exactly. And if it, like, offers me a little bit of, like, peace, then why not, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. If it's a placebo, it's a placebo. Who exactly. Knows? But, yeah. like, hey, it's worth it when you're in, you know, the mental state that comes after loss. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, that is our crazy, horrible story. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a kind of a personal question. Sure. Have you guys told anybody or is this your first time? No. Kind of- so we did we told so because of our like infertility journey, like all of all of my friends um, were aware of like every step of the way. So like the egg don't choosing the egg donor and like when I did my transfer and like, so as soon as I was pregnant, people knew like, cause there was no way around it. Like they knew where I was in the process. So like, <laughs> like I had to tell them if it yeah. was positive or negative. Um, yeah. and like looking back that it was so good for me because when we went through the loss, like our friends and family, like sent us flowers and sympathy cards. And it was just, it was very helpful, like, to have that support system. 
Absolutely. And because like termination is so controversial, which like you totally understand. Did you get any, like, what was the support versus the backlash for you? Yeah, I didn't, there was no backlash. Um, And my, so my parent, my parents, especially my dad is super religious and he is pro-life and even he was like, um, you, you can't carry this baby, you know, like they're, this baby is suffering and this baby's not going to make it like, you can't do this. So, um, everyone was very supportive of our situation. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, if you had one piece of advice for somebody in a similar situation, what would it be? Yeah. Um, I would say just like really lean into the grief. Like, I think it's really important to not bury it and like, that means something different to a lot of people. But for me, it meant sob uncontrollably and like take time off work. And, you know, we created this memorial and like I went to therapy. I've been going to therapy. Um, Like I just think of it as like, you know, when you're, you're like at work or something and you're talking to someone and you're like trying so hard to fight back tears and like, it just makes everything so much worse. (laughs) And then you're like ugly crying by the end of it. Like, on a larger scale, imagining that on a larger scale, like suppressing grief when you should be acknowledging it is just like ultimately making things worse. Yeah. Um, and I was watching um, this TED talk. Um, have you ever watched any of Nora McInerney's stuff? Mm-mm. So she, um, she lost her baby, her dad and her husband in like a, a one month period. Oh my which goodness. Is just, I know, which is um I can't even imagine, but she said something that really stuck with me. She said, um, grief is chronic and incurable. It's not a death sentence, but sometimes it feels like it can be. And I feel like that just like gave me permission to be like, you know, it's okay to be weak. Like we're all emotional beings and like grief is hard. It's like the hardest work we'll ever do, but like, it's a journey you have to face, you know, to Mm -hmm. like find joy after miscarriage. Um, so yeah, that's just that. And like, the other thing is as powerful as, and like all encompassing as grief is like, I still feel like hope is stronger. Like I still feel like, even though I've spent like the majority of the past three years, like in stirrups getting wanded, (laughs) which I've turned into a verb, wanded, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And like stabbing myself with fertility drugs and like sobbing into a pillow, like all the time. (laughs) Like, I feel like even all of that has happened to me. Like I'm still so hopeful that like this is going to happen again. Like I can get pregnant and it's kind of crazy because like if this was like a career path that I was pursuing, like I would have quit two years ago, like forget it, you know? Um, but you just keep pushing on because this is, it just shows you how important it is. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, stay hopeful is what I would say. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin, for jumping yes. on and sharing your story, especially with it being like so fresh for you too. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Definitely thank you. got the real raw emotions. Yeah. Of- <laughs> your journey. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And thank you for like having this podcast. Like it's, it's helped me so much just to hear everyone's stories. So good. thank, thank you good. for doing what you do. Yeah. Thank you. That means a lot. All right. Well, we will talk soon. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it with a friend who could find it useful or share it on your Instagram stories. Tag myself, tag my guest so that we can personally thank you. This is a lamb fam, you guys. We're not in this alone. We're creating this ripple effect together.